I reached the airspeed, hit the, the start button, it didn't work, and I just had the time to make a balloon, align myself with the field, I lowered the gear and set flaps. In order to do that, I had to change hands while on the balloon, maneuver, and man, imagine the rush. The pressure on my ears just gets bigger and bigger, and the pain as well. This pain, I can only really compare it to a knife slowly being pushed into your ear. It was really the most uncomfortable I've ever felt in a landing. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider and pilot's podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you. My name is Chuck, and I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 94. Today we head to Brazil to chat with Sergio Lasado. He is a 35-year-old soaring pilot, cross-country coach, and flight test engineer. Sergio has been flying sailplanes since 2007, but for as long as he can remember, he has been addicted to aviation. And interesting enough, soaring made it possible to fulfill his dreams, and his gliding activity was decisive when he was selected to become a flight test engineer of military aircraft, and he got to fly a good number of them. What he learned in the flight test environment he found to be very useful to soaring. And what is the Soaring Master Project? Well, we're going to find out about that as well. Sergio has flown in many parts of the world, the Andes, the Alps, and of course Brazil, and since 2018 has been acting as coach for the Brazilian Air Force Soaring Team. So many great stories like the time he depended on his motor glider engine to start while he was getting dangerously low. Later on the podcast, Dale Masters will bring us another soaring tale with Dale, and this one is titled, A Half Second Later is a Second Too Late. We are excited to bring you a new segment on this episode called Simon Says. One of our previous guests, Flying Simon, has a brand new story and some very important advice from a flight he experienced. All this now on episode 94 of Soaring the Sky. You know, our sponsors mean a lot to us, and one of those important sponsors is Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. They are number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems and your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable systems. Aerox recently introduced the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. This thing is small, lightweight, and it is super simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for that occasional user who wants the flexibility to access those higher altitudes without having to worry about flying impaired. It's now available at Aerox Distributors and, of course, at Aerox.com. So remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Sergio Lasado, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Absolutely. Thanks for spending the time to join us here on the on the podcast. I do, of course, have a very important question that we all want to know. And how did your aviation journey get started? Yeah, well, for as long as I can remember, I love aviation. Uh, there are pictures of me as a baby, super happy with a aircraft model in my hands, playing around. And uh, but uh, I decided to pursue a different career. I didn't. I didn't uh, become a pilot. I became an aeronautical engineer. I really wanted to have to participate in aircraft design, you know, to have something that I designed, some decision in aircraft design, and that's uh, I became an, uh, that's why I became an aeronautical engineer. And uh, nowadays I'm a, a flight test engineer. But during my master degree in aeronautical engineering, I discovered that the Aeronautical Institute had a soaring club, and I decided to check it out. And uh, that's how soaring started for me. And uh, nowadays I've locked about 750 hours around that. Flown some 18 uh, different types of sailplanes. And uh, I started in a very interesting period of transition between gliders from a more traditional construction to full GRP sailplanes. Uh, when I started my club, I had a 1945 type basically a Brazilian type called Niva B, basically a, a twin-seater Grunel baby. And then on the advanced phase of the program, you would go to the Blank L-13, which is a 1950 aircraft. By the end of my 
course, uh, my club received two brand new ASK 21s. So in my course, I got to fly basically the uh, 1945 type uh, wooden aircraft, uh, metallic sailplane, the Blanick and the K21s. It was it was super interesting, you know. So before we get into your soaring master project, I really want to hear about some of that some of that but uh some of the other stuff you've been working on can you take us through some of your experience as a test pilot what are some of the things you learned there that you think helped you develop into a more masterful soaring pilot and if you want to toss in any of those crazy scary test pilot stories along the way please feel free to do that (laughs) yeah yeah Sure. Uh, well, um, I'm a, a flight test engineer, actually. Uh, it's a different role from the test pilot uh, role. Basically, the, every basic flight test crew has a flight test pilot and a flight test engineer. And uh, when the aircraft allows it, both are flying the same aircraft. And that's how I, I got into flight testing. And it requires a lot of preparation. Many people think that flight testing is about, oh, okay, let's go and see if this aircraft will survive going to the edge of the envelope. But it's not like that. Actually, there's a lot of ground uh, study analysis uh, in order to allow us to go there and see how the aircraft will behave. So we go there after after terribly studying and what is the expected behavior of the aircraft and uh, and also if everything goes wrong what we will do uh, at each case scenario so uh this kind of preparation really changed my way of of seeing soaring and ultimately it helped me to develop uh, a training method that uh, really uh, benefits pilots in achieving their goals and improving themselves because it makes uh, that's what the flight testing uh, helped me a lot exactly to come up with this method that identifies exactly what's going wrong, what are the your gaps and what you should do to improve it. Yeah, I mean obviously you're helping a lot of people because of what you're doing, but it also helps you as a pilot. Yeah, true. That's uh, it completely changed my my way of seeing serving and uh, it's it's uh, interesting because we see. Lots of training methods nowadays for every, pretty much everything. For uh, learning a new language, there are methods for learning languages. Uh, but there's nothing there for soaring. And uh, of course, you've got, we've got great textbooks about it, but you don't have training method for soaring. And that's what I worked on very hard to come up with and uh, with very successful results. Well, before we get into your uh, soaring master project, Saw from your bio that you're coaching the Brazilian Air Force soaring team. Wow, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's it all started back in 2018. Back then, uh, the Brazilian Air Force soaring club they used gliders primarily for flight instruction and not for cross country flying. Not uh, from not for a sportive reason. And, uh, well, uh, we started talking. They believed in my method with a few iterations. Uh, they all, in two years, they, uh, they put one of their pilots as a second place in Brazilian nationals. So this was a, a huge step. And uh, it was um, a, a real, it, it was great to see that this method, if it can help uh, 50 cadets to excel in cross-country serving. Hey, this needs to be available for everyone. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and they have a, a very good fleet. I mean, they have the G1000s, the discus, discus. So uh, it's mainly it's not it was not nothing related to uh, the fleet itself. It was about training, and that's where this this method uh, came along. In the pre-interview, we had chatted a bit about your Soaring Master project. Following as many Instagram accounts as we do here on the show, I was always most impressed by your short instructional videos of stuff like the Netto versus the Vario. Pretty much anything you were posting. I love how you use the old school pen and paper with the top-down camera angle. And you just talk and draw through the lessons at the same time. Just a really effective way to teach that sometimes gets lost in our modern era with all the bells and whistles and the shiny objects. Can you talk to our listeners about the inspiration behind your new project 
and where people can follow you and learn more about it. Uh, I started an Instagram channel about two years ago. Uh, anyone can follow me. It's uh, at Surin Master, the account. And uh, I tried to uh, share with other pilots the, the essence of the techniques and share tips and all knowledge about cross-country flying exactly to help everyone to achieve their goals because we see lots of, of accounts of, uh, with great images from top pilots, you know, and we see this influx of many new pilots on a sport and this is great. But the way I see it is that we need now to help the everyone who got into serving to really achieve uh, uh, their goals and to, to help them to become their own masters and to take those uh, incredible shots flying over uh, incredible terrain and to return from a flight super happy because uh, you did that badge, you, you achieved that, that badge, that specific flight goal. And uh, that's where my channel uh, is a perfect platform uh, to talk through uh, techniques, to explain how it works, how it should be done, what to look for. Because, uh, as I said, uh, we do have great books nowadays about serving, but there's a, a huge lack of, of training methods. And uh, that's, when, uh, that's where I, I got all of my uh, background from flight testing. Uh, and I've developed this anti-fragile uh, method. Uh, and and anti, I say anti-fragile because uh, many people are not aware of this, this term. Uh, basically, uh, it's a term coined by a, a, a Lebanese uh, economist, and it, it's very interesting because uh, I basically use the same thing that the, system, the that the worldwide aviation system has used in order to be so safe, but applied to sorry. Basically, uh, we have three different types of things or systems. Uh, we have fragile things, we have robust things, and we have anti-fragile things. And fragile things are all those things or systems which are super sensitive to any change in the surrounding environment. And picture a a box of wine in the tarmac, (laughs) JFK, you know, almost a magnet for for shocks. And uh, that's a a fragile thing. And uh, robust things are aircraft. Uh, aircraft to de- deliver exactly that that performance figure, that reliability number, uh, that fuel flow, if operated within the the envelope for which it has been designed. And uh, you've got anti-fragile things, which are those things which grow with stress, which grow with setbacks, with uh, with with small small amounts of stress. So basically, we've got the aeronautical system, which is a very anti-fragile system. It grows safer and safer at each new accident because we go there, we study what happened, and we do not allow it to repeat. So you, it grows stronger with each new setback. And that's basically what I got into this method. It basically identifies what are the differences, differences from what you set out to do from what you had. Uh, we do a numerical analysis of the flight. Uh, we've got in-depth uh, lectures with video, flight footage, exactly to help you identify what you've been doing wrong. And then we go to the next flight with the, the goal of not repeating the mistakes from the past flight. This is very top level what the method is all about and uh it brings terrific uh, results yeah absolutely you know like you said there is a lack of that in the soaring world so it's keep doing what you're doing is very cool that you're pulling all that from the aviation the powered stuff and pulling it into the soaring it will become a course an online course that will be available to everyone uh, i'm gonna release it uh next june so if everyone is interested just follow me at, at SurreyMaster uh, on Instagram or uh, the site SurreyMaster.com. Awesome. We will definitely keep an eye on that. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Can you spend a few minutes to share with our listeners about the gliding scene in Brazil and South America in general? Certainly from social media and some of the posts we've seen, it sure looks like there's a very vibrant soaring community down there. And if you could also maybe just touch on how soaring has held 
in the region during some of the recent economic and pandemic challenges? Yeah, sure. Uh, gliding in South America is concentrated in four countries. Uh, here in Brazil, currently I'm living here in Brazil, uh, in Uruguay, in Argentina, and Chile. Basically, uh, we will have the, the strongest uh, the sport has many clubs in Argentina. Argentina has around 52 gliding clubs. Brazil comes second with around 25. Then Chile with three clubs and Uruguay with two. So um, it's a continent with great with great soaring. Uh, it's not out of coincidence that Pelan has chosen uh, the Andes to to perform their flights and um, and now so the the Andes they provide great soaring conditions for wave flying, mountain flying, and the continental South America also has many different uh, regions with uh, flatlands or some regions very similar to continental Europe. In the northeastern part of Brazil, basically, you have uh, a more arid region with super strong soaring conditions, very similar to the Austra to Australia. We've got a very uh, strong community. Each country has its own, own uh, characteristics, of course. But the pandemic has affected uh, in different ways each country or, or the clubs because each country had a different strategy to deal with the pandemic. And within these countries, states had also uh, some peculiarities. So, for instance, uh, guys at Chile spent a long time without being able to fly. And nowadays they're they are allowed to. Here in Brazil, we, we didn't face that many restric restrictions. It was different uh, uh, at each place. So um, the pandemic really affected the flights in, in this way. Uh, when you ask about the economic impact, and uh, this has always been a stressor for all the clubs here in the region, you know, for many different reasons, but basically all clubs here in the uh, South America suffer from high taxes because sailplanes are taxed as luxury goods. And so it's it's expensive. It doesn't uh, stop people who can obviously afford it to have. So we have many archers. We have good fleets here, uh, but it could be better if it was cheaper, if the taxes weren't that high, and the exchange rates also if they helped. So this actually makes the community very close knit. I mean, there's not any. We don't have fences. You'll be. We are all helping each other in what we can. And I mean that in country level. I mean, uh, we all have great exchange with, with Argentina, with Chile, and vice versa, uh, exactly because we do have to <laughs> suffer a little bit to, to maintain our sport up. Well, something we always like to ask here on the podcast is kind of ties in with this. And how are things going with getting new pilots into soaring in your country? Does the government support any initiatives? Do they provide any incentives to budding pilots, or is it kind of like grassroots? Yeah, we have had uh, the Brazilian at least. I'll answer for for Brazil. I mean, uh, the local federation has in the past few years some initiatives with scholarships. Some of them uh, had government support. Some other were uh, initiatives from the own federation. So uh, nowadays we live a good era with social media helping to bring new pilots. You know, this is very different from uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So we have this good influx of new pilots. But as I said to you, uh, the pandemic has brought a lot of uncertainty whether these young people will be able to afford and uh, whether they will be, uh, stay in the sport or we'll have to see. Yes, hopefully that all improves. Yeah. Shifting gears here, but can you tell us a little about your glider? It's a type some pilots over here may not be too familiar with. If you could spend a couple minutes talking about the hand crank for the engine deployment, that would be great too. Sure. Uh, I own a Peak 20 Echo, which is the Echo version of the uh, Peak 20 series. The Peak 20 is, uh, is a Finnish 15-meter uh, uh, flapped sailplane uh, developed by the Helsinki University of Technology back in the 70s. Uh, it became a very famous sailplane because Ingo Renner uh, used, uh, he won the 1976 World Championship with a Pic 20 Bravo. So it, put, 
became the hype of the time. I thought I have the Echo version, the self-launched version. Uh, it has a Rotax engine. NASA uh, used uh, Pic-20 Echo uh, until the 90s for testing, for uh, researching uh, laminar airfoils and spin and, and lots of other research. It is uh, the first commercially produced self-launched sailplane. So uh, it has uh, many uh, mechanical features since it was the first time that, you know, engineers had to deal with the problem of extracting and retracting an engine from sailplane. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, it's a, it has very clever uh, mechanical systems and you have this hand crank the, on the right side of, of the cockpit that it's a well-balanced gearing and uh, there's a well-balanced gear and it takes 15 turns to extract or to retract the engine. It's super light operated. And nowadays uh, this is done with an electronic system and the hand crank itself, it's super reliable. It has a very, as I said, it has very clever uh, mechanical linkage. So basically you you have two handles, you have the, the hand crank and you have another handle just to operate the propeller brake together with the engine doors. So basically uh, you cannot, you break the propeller when the engine doors are full open and then you retract it with 15 turns and then you close it. It's, it's, super, it's super well designed. One thing that is very interesting is that when the, the manufacturer uh, ceased its operations, the Finnish authority became the top certificate holder and it ma- they made uh, available online all of the technical drawings. So you basically, uh, you can build any part at all on your own. So this is great for maintainability. Oh, nice. Very cool. Yeah. And I mean, I've never seen anything like it with any other sailplane type. But of course, I, I mean, we are dealing with, uh, with an adapted engine, a two, an adapted two-stroke engine. And both, I believe that most of, of the motor gliders or self-launch or sustainer sailplanes have adapted two-stroke engines. So you cannot expect the reliability of an aeronautical certified engine. So uh, you still have to take all of the precautions with motor glider or sustainer or whatever, because it's not, it's not guaranteed that it will work. And it, it actually uh, happened to me once. I had to land out once with uh, with the Pic-20, with the uh, extracted engine. It was during a competition. Uh, the engine failed to air start, so I I had to to land out with it, and uh, that was really hard because after that occasion, I uh, I decided to change completely my way of run of planning the extraction or the operation of the engine if when needed because it was such a rush chuck because when you extract the engine you your sailplane that the pic 20 delivers around 1 to 40. Uh, when you extract the engine you go to 1 to 10 as a glide ratio so yeah you are you are a rock with a wingsuit basically oh wow, wow. and uh yeah how long does it take to extract it around 40 seconds the entire process but once it finishes once you have the engine extended man you are falling with gliding uh with one to ten so you don't have that much time and what happened to me was that i deployed the engine by 400 meters this would be around uh, 1200 feet agl i performed three air start attempts and by the end of the downwind lag, I decided to use the last resort, which is windmilling and windmilling air start. But in order to do that, you need to accelerate sailplane to uh, around 80 knots. So imagine accelerating to 80 knots, something that already glides with a 1 to 10. Yeah. <laughs> so it, yeah. So it was basically, and this on the, on the down, downwind lag for, an hour, uh, for, for landing out. So... Uh, Basically, I, it, it was a, a dive, uh, nearly 45 degrees down. Wow! I reached the yeah, I reached the airspeed, uh, hit the the start button. It didn't work, and I just had the time to make a balloon, align myself with the field, 
And then I, I lowered the gear and set uh, flaps, uh, the landing flaps. I mean, all of the, in order to do that, I had to change hands while, while on the balloon, maneuver, and man, wow. imagine the rush. <laughs> uh, all ended yeah, well, I mean, though, right? <laughs> All ended well, and the next day, uh, my my wife came with the with the trailer, and then we disassembled on the field, and then I figured out it was a carburetor problem. That's why I didn't start. But uh, there are great lessons out from this one. Nowadays, I prepare my engine deployment process to do that by 400 uh, meters, nearly uh, with 100 feet more. First, I set the glider for landing, uh, lowered the, the gear down, I prepared it for landing. Then I extract the engine, and I will only do one attempt on the final when stabilized. If it doesn't work, I'm already committed to land in a much more safer and controlled process than before. And uh, we, we always see pilots uh, motor, with motor gliders or self-launched or sustainers with accidents or, or breaking their sailplanes because they relied a bit too much uh, and they didn't have any reserves at all. Right. So yeah. that, that yeah, you need to have them. I mean, uh, we need to remember that these are not aeronautical engines, you know, and we do need to have reserves and to be prepared for when it doesn't work. Absolutely. Because that's when things will will get messy. I want to take a minute and thank and tell you about our newest sponsor, Wings and Wheels. They've been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They're proud to be an exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. You can bet a friendly voice will answer when you call. They're located in Eagle, Idaho, in their new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications, and that was completed this year. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. They would love for you to come and visit the next time you're in the Boise area. You can check them out on wingsandwheels.com. We're super excited to have them on the pod. While prepping for the show, um, my co-producer Mitch and I saw several of your posts from Lem there in Brazil back from last fall. Well, I guess it's a, it was actually your spring down there. Could you share with our listeners about your amazing flights and experiences down there and what some of your best memories were? Yeah, uh, Lem, uh, is, it's a... Uh... It's an outstanding region here in Brazil, and it's definitely a new soaring frontier. It's in the northeastern part of the country in a semi-arid region. And uh, imagine, Chuck, uh, picture uh, um, a region where you have this huge plateau with lots of farms. Uh, here in Brazil, we call it industrial farming because they are huge, huge. They have the size of... Of towns a single farm has the size of towns wow and uh yeah uh, when we in the first championships back there just a, a quick note if you landed out uh and you didn't have enough energy uh, on your batteries to to try contact via radio everyone was briefed that by 4 30 p.m the tow plane would go would be up in, in as high as as high as it could, exactly to pick up the signals from everyone who had landed out. Oh my! Be, before, yeah, before night, because since the distances are so so great, uh, you don't have cell cell phone signal. So basically, you have to rely on radio. It, it's like that. But the the region. Let's go back to the region and uh, imagine this huge plateau of these industrial farms. And uh, this plateau ends in a wall that uh, goes for 400 kilometers uh, straight. And uh, in the in the low part, of, in the lowland, you've got a uh, tropical savanna, which is called uh, Cerrado here in, in Brazil. 
And uh, in the northeastern part of this region, you've got untouched vegetation, untouched uh, forests. Man, you've got such strong soaring conditions in this place. I mean, you get uh, cloud tops near 10,000 feet. Nice. You know, it's, it's, it, you have dust devils uh, during the entire soaring day. And uh, it's great. You, you, you get in the same flight so many different regions. You go from flatland flying to ridge flying to flying in uh, an area of, uh, of un- unlandable terrain. Then you need to cross uh, untouched forest canopies. It's, it's amazing. It's a new starting frontier, definitely. Wow. It's a, it sounds absolutely beautiful. Yeah. It is, and flights we we do that. I mean, it, it's they are outstanding. Uh, the, I I don't know how the pandemic will go until there, but the fourth Pan American uh, Lighting Games are scheduled to be uh, at LAM. So uh, yeah, it's a new soaring frontier, and every pilot who goes there will see. It. Wow, that's close to something that we could call soaring paradise. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. One of our show contributors wanted to ask about wave flying in Brazil and whether that was a thing or not really. We know the Andes are fertile skies for wave soaring. Just curious if anything happening in Brazil, and while on the topic of wave, if you have a good wave flight story or two, this is your chance to slip that into. <laughs> I know you flew <laughs> Yeah, no. you flew in the Alps and the Andes too, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, but we do have uh, wave, waves here too. Uh, Stronger in a specific region uh, near my my home uh, air club uh, in the in the state of São Paulo we have this this valley uh, with uh, with a mountain chain that's called Mantiqueira and the Mantiqueira uh, is the one that produces waves uh, they are they are very strong but they are very sensitive to weather variables but when when the variables align we have very strong waves here uh they go up to uh 28,000 30,000 feet wow yeah i know they they the thing is that uh they have been mapped uh, since the 50s and uh mainly by the work of, uh, of a certain pilot here who is also an engineer of uh galvan galvan has tracked where they're they're generated and galvan also is is the responsible for LAM being a certain frontier nowadays, he is the one who identified the region uh, a couple of years ago. So we mapped the conditions there. The waves are, uh, that's where I, I learned to fly waves. My personal best was uh, 23,000 feet. The sad story is that nowadays uh, we have, uh, after the Olympic Games here in Brazil, I believe the 2012, I don't, re- don't recall, they put five airways exactly above the region so uh now nowadays we can fly waves during the uh, weekends and holidays of course we just need to schedule that with with the waves but we have waves here what weather products do you use down there typically are there areas you source supported by you know sky site the likes of those or are there models you are using that are just local yeah here uh we use a lot of xc skies and sky site they have full coverage of the country and uh top meteo uh i know that top meteo was covering chile they did that for the uh, world championships there but i don't know if top meteo is covering the entire south america but uh, we do mainly use xc skies and skyside okay what's the single most satisfying day or flight during a soaring competition could you just kind of walk us through that day well, i believe that the last nationals held at land were amazing and i remember this particular flight when we had we set out for the 15 meter class for a 500 kilometer task and uh it was a racing task so basically you had to you had to do it there there was not an area task lm is has so so many different regions to be crossed and uh, i remember that we were one of the points one of the waypoints were far north and to reach it uh, we had uh, that transition between terrain. You switch it from flatlands to uh, something like Colorado uh, landscape, and then you reached 
uh, forest canopy. This this transition. Oh wow! Yeah, it was so extreme <laughs> that we nicknamed Dinosaur Valley, and that's how we nicknamed it. Because in order to cross it, <laughs> it was so challenging. When we we're crossing exactly the Dinosaur Valley, the day started to dry up and to become a blue day. Oh no! Oh yeah. Then we had to switch tactics to uh, remain higher slightly reduce the uh, the McCready ring and to be able to to turn the waypoint it was super challenging and on the way back we did have to cross lots of green regions with untouched forest canopy and uh, it was one of my most challenging flights i did that in a dg 1000 sierra uh, back then at the last nationals i was coaching the brazilian air force so i was always flying with a cadet but I was in, in, in command and uh, showing him how, how to compete and tutoring him. And it was super challenging. And just, you know, that feeling of m- making back to the field, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After such a challenging flight, was, it was great. It was one of the greatest. Yeah, it, it will become one of the greatest memories I'll ever have of, of competition flying. That, that's, that's what I love about competition uh, you set out for tasks that honestly you wouldn't go for if in normal conditions. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you've had your share of these as a test pilot, but in a glider, do you have one or two real oh shoot moments where after looking back you thought, well, that almost wasn't good? And also maybe some thoughts on what you learned from those moments. My oh shoot moment was with the Pic 20 Echo, with my Cephalon sailplane. Uh, I was taking off in a very hot day, 40 degrees Celsius, nearly 100, far, 100 Fahrenheit. And this temperature with a two-stroke engine, you know, is it's it's hard. And uh, I was in a rush to take off uh, for a 300-kilometer triangle, and I was behind schedule. Well, I did my engine checks, started the, the takeoff run. I had uh, the, the engine reached the, the RPM, all good. I took off but man the climb rate wasn't that good it wasn't that good and things were getting strange 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 and the glider wouldn't climb you know it kind of got stuck around 50 feet high above the runway and man i I said something's wrong and i started downwind lag and then i looked at my air brake handle and brakes were open Mm. during the rush i didn't i honestly they didn't follow my checklist. And uh, man, I remember, I mean, hey, uh, I'm not a, a newbie, you know? You know, I'm, I'm, I believe that. I, uh, I'm a good pilot at least. How could I forget that? When I saw myself in that situation, I know that many other pilots probably listening will remember that something similar. But man, we are all, we are all susceptible to error. And we do. It doesn't matter how simple our aircraft is. You need to follow checklist. Absolutely. If you follow the checklist, you won't have any trouble related to flight configuration. You know, yep. follow the checklist. That was a, what I learned. You know, as glider pilots, we hear crazy stories all the time, sitting around with other pilots at the airport or over beers. If you had to pick just one crazy, almost not believable story, and you don't have to use names, but what would it be? Yeah, I, I heard the story of a guy and uh, in my home club during a wave flying. And uh, yeah, my, my home club is 100 kilometers to the west of, of the coast. This pilot, he, he went uh, wave flying and he uh, went IMC. Basically, when he could find a hole in the cloud cover, on the cloud cover, he was above the ocean. Oh my! And uh, luck, yeah. Luckily enough, he was within glider reach of the only airfield in the coast side of that region. Wow. Yeah, and that's that's a wake up call for everyone who flies waves, uh, because we need really do need to be very attentive with cloud cover and inadvertent IMC because we don't have. It's, it would be hard to have any, any chance if we do get in this kind of situation. Absolutely. Can you tell us about the airport or glider port that you fly out of most of the time? And just talk maybe a little bit about the operation, the club, what kind of ships are on the field, the terrain, and the soaring conditions, you know, all of that. Yeah. Well, 
where I keep my sailplane is is different from is in another place. I have to move uh, due to due to work. Uh, where I usually fly with my pick twenty is uh, is an airport where without without any club, without any tow plane support. So basically, that's why uh, that was the driver for me to buy a self-launched sailplane. And uh, it's on the border of the São Paulo terminal, by the northwestern uh, part of it. It's a region which resembles continental Europe, and uh, we've got great thermal conditions there. Uh, during the spring and the summer, uh, we get around 2,000 meters of, of, of cloud tops, so this would be around 6,000, 7,000 feet AGL. The thing is that the thermal window here in this more continental region is rather short. So basically, thermals will start to build up by 11 a.m., 11.30, and uh, by 4.30 p.m., you are better be on uh, Final Glide because if you do have to find lift out there, most probably you won't. That's the region where I keep my, my sailplane. But now that I'm living here in the southern part of the country, I'm been flying at Palmeira das Missões, which is a very traditional club here in the southern part of, of, of Brazil. Conditions are very similar to continental Europe, too. Uh, you get here the fleet is composed of a Grob 103, you get Yunters, Discus, and national types, the KW1 for uh, the club class. It's a great club. Uh, it has very interesting terrain features here because basically, here in the southern part of the country, we are in what is called Pampa which is uh, a very interesting region to fly uh, with lots of fields, with lots of outlining options, good certain conditions during the spring. It's interesting. It's very nice to fly here. Sergio, as we wind down the interview, is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to in your soaring world? Mentors, competitors, family, anybody? Yeah, I would like to shout out to Galvão, who is a great soaring pilot. And he really is, is a person who also willingly shared uh, information and uh, really did work uh, that uh, all of us followed after in order to identify good soaring regions here in the in this country. Uh, to my original club, CVV, CTA, to everyone there, I mean, that's where I learned to fly and I'll always be thankful for everyone who helped me out and shared their knowledge. And to the Brazilian Air Force Soaring, soaring Club, they really believed in my work with the Story Master. And, uh, well, it's they're, they're amazing. They're a very competent bunch of, of soaring pilots. It's, it's great work with them. Well, before I let you go, um, we're going to have a little fun. It's our soaring lightning round. So basically, I will give you a question, answer the question if you can within 10 or 20 seconds, and uh, you can pass or, or you can answer okay. it. What do you think? Great. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Coolest plane you've ever flown in your gig as a test pilot? Uh, my childhood dream uh, aircraft, the AMX. There's an attack aircraft, uh, and uh, that, was, that was the coolest. Nice. Plane you were least comfortable or even nervous about flying in your test pilot flights? Well, never because of the type of the aircraft, because uh, uh, flight testing is not... I always have confidence on the type, but much I was much more uh, worried about what we were doing with with the aircraft. So there was, <laughs> yeah, there was a, a flight test when we were integrating a, a new bomb, which uh, the models weren't that clear if it would be a there would be a, a safe separation from the aircraft, and that was def that was identified as a, a high risk flight test. That was that that testing one that uh, not nervous but concerned what is the biggest or heaviest item in your land out kit uh, the heaviest would be a, a two a two liter water bottle a 70 ounce water bottle that's the heaviest thing bailout kit strapped to your parachute in your pockets or none at all none at all but uh since since you said that well i, I really believe that i should start carrying it <laughs> gloves yeah. Gloves while flying, even in summer. Yeah, when I don't forget them. I mean, when I usually I forget them, and uh, <laughs> my wife is always complaining that eh, you've left you left your your gloves because <laughs> during the summer here it, it burns. The sun here can really burn. Oxygen above five thousand, ten thousand, 
always or never really needed for normal conditions where you fly? Well, where I fly, we don't don't really need it. But there are some uh, days back at Lem, back at uh, northeastern part. Lem uh, lies uh, about 2,500 feet from sea level. And when you get uh, the 10,000 feet basis, you'll be flying at 12,000 feet. So uh, back then, back there, in certain, certain days, you really would need some, some oxygen. Flight preparation, day before, morning of, and what are the things you most commonly forget over the years? Well, the night before, and usually I just, uh, by the morning of the day of the flight, I just see the difference from the past day's forecast. Over the years, well, I forgot to, to check the entrance of high cover eventually. That's that's what I, in the past, what I often forgot to, to, to check out. Favorite soaring book? Uh, Competing in Gliders by, by Leo and Ricky Biliadori. Definitely, that's my favorite one. What would you value more, win a contest or set a record? Well, I'm much more a record person. My objective is now this, this season, this upcoming season, because it's here in, in Southern Hemisphere in, the, in winter. And, uh, well, a record, definitely. I'm trying the 300-kilometer uh, triangle speed goal. So that's my main focus. I really like the records. Landout, you have two options. Busy, towered, Class Charlie Regional Airport or a relatively short but probably landable farmer's field far off the beaten track. I would go to the busy airport because if it's, uh, you said, uh, relatively short but probably landable, right? right? I would go to the busy airport no matter what. I've already, I've uh, once I have even landed on a military field. Oh, nice. Uh, exactly because I was, yeah, I was flying over uh, unlandable terrain and the only option was military field and I wouldn't. I don't. I wouldn't think twice. You have to land out, and both fields are the same surface and length. Slight uphill with 15 knot tailwind, or slight downhill with 15 knot headwind. Uh, headwind always. Uh, I would. I would choose the 15 15 knot headwind field. Slightly downhill. The speed is super important in, in a during an out landing because uh, you have to. In order to land short, you need to, to have good control of, of airspeed, and you don't have this kind of thing with a tailwind. So definitely headwind, slightly downhill. Emergency, you have two options. Jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. I'll land in a lake. Uh, if, I have, if the aircraft is controllable, I will bring it nicely to the ground, always. Uh, I will only jump if I have structural collapse or complete loss of control. Otherwise, I'm landing. What's your favorite soaring bird to follow and lift? Vultures. Man, uh, here, uh, vultures are very common, Chuck. And um, nice. yeah, and they are really helpful. Uh, they have helped me many times in, in hard points of, of soaring tasks to find the savior lift, you know, uh, vultures, definitely. Flaps or no flaps? Uh, flaps are a one-way ticket. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> after you fly a flap sail plane, you don't, don't want anything else. Ridge lift or thermal lift? Thermal lift. I love, I love the, the challenge of thermal lift. Bucket hat, cap, bandana, or stocking cap? Bucket hat. Definitely. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? Boots. Uh, you never know over what you have to walk on to ask for help. So, boots, definitely. Water bottle or camelback? Water bottle. 15 meter or 18 meter? 15. I, uh, mainly because, well, I'm a short guy. <laughs> I'm a sh uh, so, uh, it's, it's easier for me. But uh, honestly, I, I like the challenge. I believe that the 15 meter class is super challenging. I like this uh, 15 meter, definitely. Metal gliders or wooden gliders? Wooden. Wooden gliders are, are awesome. Various sound in sync or quiet? I would uh, uh, various sound. The various sound in order to help me uh, uh, go through the downdraft and to analyze wh whether it's improving or not.
Absolutely. Spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? I, I generally keep them closed. Uh, usually closed. I uh, would only open if if it's absolutely needed, but uh, generally I would keep them closed. Paper checklist or mnemonic? Paper, definitely. Last time you looked at the compass. When I ra- arrived in the traffic pattern of my last flight, I, I, I usually, I, I really uh, take a, a lot of, of, of attention to compass and uh, I'm an old schooler in terms of navigation because I've seen that when things go wrong, you will be uh, on your own with, uh, with a compass, a word, air chart, and, and your decision. So uh, I'm always looking at the compass. P-tube, P-bag, diaper, or hold it as long as you can and take a pee right when you jump out of the cockpit after landing. P-bag, P-bag. Uh, well, uh, that, but that's me. Took more comfort <laughs> right? with the P-bag. <laughs> <laughs> Tie down for the night or stuff it into the trailer every time, no matter what. During a competition, I do tie down the sailplane, but otherwise I would stuff it into the trailer. Gatorade or water in summer flights? Water. Always water, because uh, if you have thirst, uh, you need to solve this problem with a simple thing. It's water, because Gatorade has sugar, and uh, I've seen pilots flying with energy drinks, which also have both sugar and caffeine. So, I mean, no, if if you're thirsty, water. Yep. That's it. Favorite single instrument in the cockpit? Vario. Vario makes the entire difference, because... Tinted canopy or clear? Tinted. I like very much tinted of tinted canopies. A glider pilot that you don't personally know, but really look up to them for whatever reason or whatever accomplishment. Well, not, nowadays I, I don't have anyone special, but uh, for years I would always look up what Baleka was up to. Uh, Baleka would be that person, you know. Your adult beverage of choice. Uh, pint of bitter ale. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> What's more cool, a Perlin glider on Mars or a little helicopter drone? Ah, uh, Perlin on Mars, definitely. That was an easy one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was an easy one. <laughs> Sergio, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's really been fun chatting with you. And wow, that, that some really cool country you get to soar. And we're going to keep an eye on your project. And keep that up and that that's some good stuff thank you for doing that thank you very much Chuck. it was great talking to you author and glider pilot dale masters brings us another soaring tale and this one's called a half second later is a second too late you might fly hundreds of launches without needing to abort for some atmospheric reason but have no doubt eventually it will happen One factor that multiplies that probability is a strong, direct crosswind. Aside from the usual problems of ordinary cornering winds, a 90-degree cross raises the possibility of sudden tailwind component. And that's not all. Enter the specter normally associated with landing, the slowing of wind near the surface we call wind gradient. In this case, it's the wind's increase with height that becomes a problem. Say you begin with a crosswind near the limit, 15 knots or so, depending on many variables. Then halfway up the strip, both aircraft have lifted off, and about 20 feet high, the wind abruptly doubles. If the tow pilot responds properly, your crab angle may also double, which is okay so long as you let the glider swing out downwind to stay in good position. But what if that redoubled crosswind blows both birds sideways off the runway and over low ground that's not entirely clear. If the increase in ambient crosswind is 10 knots, five seconds later, you're a couple wingspans from the center line. Think about runway lights. Fortunately, this is a rare occurrence, and after it happened to me the second time, it became part of my usual spiel for flight reviews. My first scare was in New England, swept sideways over deep grass rolling downhill into a swale. We were lower than runway level when the tug's wheels started nicking brush. Expecting to be cut loose, I reached for the release, thinking better to crash without the tug than into it. And that's when we started pulling away from the ground. 
My second time with this, this experience was here at Crystal, where we have no handy swale below runway level. I could have aborted into the wind with still half the airport straight ahead, even as we skimmed diagonally over the fuel truck toward the hangars. But every half second of indecision made that less feasible. Almost immediately, it was too late to do anything but hang on and pray we kept the altitude we had. On we drifted in ground effect, sidewise, across the entrance road on the wrong side of the hangars, all because we didn't release in time. So the nutshell is, with direct crosswinds, be ever more than ever ready to abort now and get safely back on the ground while you still have half the airport right there ahead, upwind of you. One of our previous guests, Flying Simon, brings you a brand new segment, and this one we like to call Simon Says. Today, I'd like to tell the story of when I well and truly effed up. It is the spring of 2015, and I'm just starting out as a cross-country pilot. I just received my license the year before, but I'm really driven to make more hours and to become a better pilot. The day before the flight, I have arranged everything. I can fly the Club Zellers 4, I have an airfield to fly from, and I have reserved my mom's car. That morning I checked the weather forecast once again, and they believe that it's going to be an even better day. Perhaps I can fly my first 500 kilometers is a thought that enters my mind. Whilst I'm looking at the forecasts, I feel that my nose seems to be a bit stuffy. I quickly put it out of my mind as something that will not have an impact. A coffee and a sandwich later, the LS4 is rigged, taped and ready to fly. The clouds look beautiful and it looks as if nothing will get in the way of a good flight. My start is without problems and before I know it I'm at 1000 meters. I cruise away from the airfield and that's when problems start to hit. The equalization of my ears was no problem on the way up but now that I'm descending the pressure on my ears starts to build. I try pinching my nose and blowing hard but it is to no effect. I try it once more and then Success! One of my ears pops open. Almost at the same time, I fly into a thermal, and this really feels like a victory. But with only one ear equalized, it can lead to extreme vertigo, and that could be a real problem. At that moment, the world starts turning around, and I have realized that I have to give up this flight and cruise back to the airfield. I arrive at a comfortable height, but then I have to descend back to the ground, and every meter that I'm descending, The pressure on my ears just gets bigger and bigger, and the pain as well. This pain, I can only really compare it to a knife slowly being pushed into your ear. It was really the most uncomfortable I've ever felt in a landing, and I cannot remember much of what happened afterwards. When I drove home later that day, I asked myself, where did it go wrong? There is a big lesson we can learn from this. Every day starts with the I am safe check. Checking yourself for illness, alimentation, medication, stress, alcohol, fatigue and emotion. And there's a reason that this is the first checklist of the day. Failing on any of these items should be a showstopper for flight. But it is not uncommon that we get a goal orientation, a tunnel vision in which we ignore red flags. In my case because I wanted to go cross country and because the day was going to be really good. In aviation, we learn to have respect for the elements and for our aircraft, but we mustn't forget that we should also respect our own state of being and that a stuffy nose can have great consequences. Thank you, Simon, for that great story and very important advice. Simon has an amazing YouTube channel where he takes you with him in the cockpit called Flying Simon. You can also find him on Instagram and hear more about his aviation journey right here on the podcast. Episode 91, that one's titled open cockpits and vintage flying machines. If you want to share a short story here on the podcast, we have made it very easy for you. Go to our website, soaringthesky.com. Click on the Contact Us tab. Look for the microphone. Tell us your story in five minutes or less. There's a pretty good chance that you're going to be on the podcast if you do that. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, We would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. 
We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.